Bill Shander has been my friend and colleague for more than five years. He's also presented at our Profiting from Thought Leadership Conference. Bill is one of the world's leading authorities on data visualization. It's a fast evolving field. It's at the intersection of graphic design, information design, building charts and graphs, website design, statistical software, and other digital technologies. If you've seen what the digital editions of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and other media companies have done with their interactive charts, scrolly telling, and other digital storytelling devices, you've seen data visualization. Bill started his career as a journalist after getting a master's in journalism back in 1993. The following year, he wrote for a newsletter published by the financial trade publication, Institutional Investor. And then he realized it wasn't for him. In the mid-1990s, Bill left to start his own company, Beehive Media, creating interactive CD-ROMs. Then he moved on to website design and development. Over the last decade, Bill has had many clients in the business-to-business -business space that were doing thought leadership marketing, where visualizing their research was part of the work. Then an online training company called lynda.com approached him eight years ago to create a course on data visualization. Bill called that moment transformational for him because he realized he loved teaching data visualization. And so he's created more Lynda courses, which are now called LinkedIn Learning after Lynda was purchased by LinkedIn in 2015. And Bill teaches students at the University of Vermont. He has also created corporate workshops based on his training. In this interview, Bill explains why and how we got into the world of data visualization. He defines what it is and why it's become essential for firms that produce thought leadership content. And to help explain the value of data visualization, Bill demonstrates a recent data visualization that he created on a topic he is passionate about whether old guys like him and me have a chance of ever becoming Olympic athletes. Now, I won't spoil the suspense on this question, except to say I know what the answer is for me. Bill concludes the interview with his views on what skills B2B companies need to create great data visualization. Okay, so give us some background about how you were drawn to this world of data visualization and data depiction. Yeah, so, you know, as you said in your introduction, I've been doing this for a long time, and really, you know, I've always been an information designer is the term that I like to use, data viz being part of information design broadly. And I think when I realized that that was the part that I enjoyed the most was actually when I was doing a lot of web design and development, because what I found I gravitated to the most when I was working on those kinds of projects for my clients was what in that world is called information architecture. So when you're building a website, you decide what should the navigation be? What, what are the words in the navigation? What falls under each one of the main categories? What subcategories do you have? So just organizing all that information. And I know that for most of my clients, that was really important to get sort of organize the information, put it together in a way that was compelling and findable and all those kinds of things you worry about in web design and development. And information design broadly includes other things like airport signage is information design. Like, how do I find the bathroom in the airport? <laughs> and that's a really interesting task to me, I think. Um, and so I don't do airport signage, uh, but I was always doing data visualization, concept visualization. I love visual things also. And so, you know, it just occurred to me that that's, that I really like that idea of organizing information 
translating information and then making it compelling and visual uh, and understandable to audiences. So it was something I was doing all along, uh, really even way back 30 years ago when I was doing video production. But it sort of took me a while to figure out that that was like a category of work that I could focus in on exclusively. And, and I do love data. And you know, ironically, I can't remember if I told you this, but the one class I ever dropped in college was computer programming. The one class I ever got a C in in college was statistics. And so for a lot of reasons, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, uh, but it's, here it is, and, and I really love it. So when we look at online technology, you know, websites, um, the digital tools to display data differently today that we couldn't do certainly 25 years ago on a website because there weren't many websites. Most of publications were still print going out. What, what does online you know, websites uh, and all the tools, uh, Tableau and other tools today, how does that change the game of how data can be depicted and visualized? Well, it's funny, you know, I do a lot of reading about data visualization and books, you know, there's, there's a slew of books that have come out in the last 10, 15 years or so. Or so. There is, you know, the Edward Tufte books from like the 1980s and more recently. Um, but people were writing about this back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1960s, well before there were these tools. And, you know, it's funny, in one of the books, and I can't remember if it's a William Cleveland book or uh, another one, but long story short, a lot of the book is devoted to, okay, now here's how to actually accomplish this. And it's about, you know, pre-print processes and, you know, cutting strips of paper and, you know, getting it ready for like a camera to go into print, et cetera. And so, the tools, of course, make it much easier to actually execute on these ideas just from a tactical standpoint, but also much, much, much more flexible. You know, back in the day, you could create a line chart and it was, you know, literally lines connecting data points and people, you know, you'd have like protractors and, you know, and, you know, compasses and all these kinds of things. Um, so you're, you were limited. And of course, in the computer, you have however many pixels on the screen, endless combinations of shapes and geometries and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, just from a purely uh, technical and tactical standpoint, of course, the tools enable a lot. But then you have the incredible dynamic capabilities of the computer, um, where, of course, I can animate things, make them interactive, use you know, millions of colors, not just black and white, or if you're lucky, black, white, and maybe one other color like back in the day. So, I mean, you know, you, you literally couldn't do 98% of what we can do now without computers. Uh, and of course we can do it faster, cheaper. And it's, it's, as the term goes, you know, it's been democratized. Anybody can do it now. You don't need, you know, the, the publishing capabilities that one would have had to have had back in the day. And what about interactive part of this? That of course, with a with a piece of paper and a graph or a photo or a sign, a physical sign, you know, the interactive part of the the, the viewer saying, "Well, what does that really mean? I'm going to push a button and get more information." That of course was not possible before in in, in a world of print. In your early career in uh, interactive CD-ROMs. Right, that, yeah. that interactivity began to happen, and of course, uh, with the web and what's happened since, uh, the viewers can 
participate much more in, in um, trying to understand the information that's being presented to them. So how did the interactive aspect of this technology change the game in your mind? Yeah, you know, it's so many things. You know, first of all, if you have a piece of paper or a screen, if you're back at doing like overhead presentations, you remember those, uh, you know, or a newspaper, whatever the, what the medium media were, it was limited space. It was, there was scarcity. And so you would have the chart that showed the thing you as the author needed or wanted to show. End of discussion, you, the reader, the user has no opportunity to see anything different. And so, you know, naturally, and while you could theoretically use what's called small multiples, which in the data viz world just means a bunch of tiny charts. So maybe I want to show you, I'm the author, I want to show you the 50 variations on this visualization for different, let's say, segmentation. I could show you 50 little teeny charts. And people did occasionally do that back in, in you know, earlier days. But the main advantages of interactivity are the ability to, A, allow you to filter and find the data story yourself. So rather than an editorialized experience where you're consuming what I decide you consume, you get to make decisions yourself. And part of that is personalization. You know, you get to decide, I wanna find myself in the data. And, and you know, New York Times has done this a whole bunch of times. They're one of the best in the, in the business, just generally speaking. But you know, they've done all kinds of things where you, know, you can explore a data set and for instance, um, try to think of an example. Years ago, they did one where it was all about, you know, the federal budget here in the United States. Here's how the dollars are spent, broken up into, you know, segments, you know, social security, military spending, et cetera. And the deal was, you know, if you needed to cut the budget for, by 10%, how would you cut the budget by 10%? And so you could find, well, what if I took some from here and some from here and some from here? And that, that'll be a very personalized uh, activity versus the New York Times editorial board saying what they think should be done. And so personalization, the ability to filter the data, the ability to tell unlimited numbers of stories from a data set is you know, really what interactivity enables. So the viewers of this video and podcast series are people in thought leadership in large companies, small companies, nonprofits, and you know everything between large and small, uh, for-profit, nonprofit. They're less, I believe, although maybe I'd be surprised, they're less... Um, the viewers are less likely to be in media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. And from everything I've read from, um, by you, it seems to me that a lot of the skill base exists, or maybe most of the skill base in data visualization and interactive data depiction, however, whatever you would want to call it, still exists in the, largely in the media companies and not in these large B2B professional services or software or financial services firms. Um, is that, am I reading that correctly? Um, I think it's yes and no. First of all, yes, uh, the media companies, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, a whole bunch of them, South China Morning Post, like it's all around the world, although certainly heavily Europe and North America. They are doing, no doubt, hands down, the best data storytelling, data visualization work on the planet. Um, so especially for public consumption. Yes, also, some professional services firms and financial services firms are building data visualization capabilities in hand. I know multiple professional services firms that have data visualization teams, either client-facing and or for thought leadership. 
On this front, Bill and I have pointed consistently to McKinsey's data visualizations, which you can see on their website, mckinsey.com. The global strategy consulting firm has been one of the leading users of data visualization in the consulting sector. Bill and one of the McKinsey principals in data visualization, a gentleman named Jason Forrest, presented how their firm uses DataViz at the 2020 Profiting from Thought Leadership Conference that my firm in Rattleback held. But they are definitely playing catch up to the media companies. Uh, Capital One has a big data visualization team, although I think that they are mostly for internal facing content. So it's one of these things where also a lot of these companies have data analytics teams who are using visualization again, for internal use to understand their own data. Netflix has a big data visualization team. Long story short, um, certainly for public consumption, the, the sexiest, most interesting, most compelling, really cool, interesting data visualization work is being done on the media side. But you know, these other companies are starting to catch up uh, and, and they've been doing it for a while for internal use at a minimum. And so overall, how important do you think, uh, uh, because you've done a lot of data visualization for professional services and other firms um, to support the thought leadership content that they're taking to market to help them get more viewers or help explain their material better, et cetera. Um, how important, uh, if they're bringing you in, those companies obviously know it's important to them. Do you think that that, um, it, that, that recognition is widespread among B2B firms. And in B2B firms, I include professional services firms, consulting, law, um, IT services, uh, architecture firms even. Do you, do you feel that there's a universal understanding that data visualization, especially the interactive part, is very important for our thought leadership content and we need to do it? Do I think that they universally feel that? Maybe not quite yet. I think that they are starting to get it. Data storytelling and data visualization are sort of hot topics right now, uh, generally speaking. And people who create thought leadership content know how important it is to have you know, really smart, data-driven, research-driven, compelling, complex information as part of their marketing efforts. And it is widely known, although maybe as to your point, maybe not quite as widely known as it needs to be, that human beings are visual creatures. Up to half of your brain is devoted to processing visual information. And we are visual learners. So if you are communicating complex information, data or otherwise, by the way, you should be making it visual and you should be making it interactive when you can, because it, it increases retention and accuracy of memory of that information, uh, not to mention clarity, understanding of this complex information. So, you know, are most people in that world doing it or recognizing the importance of it? They're starting to, um, but I think there's still room to improve in that area to be sure. And in, in, in those organizations and, you know, that have brought you in, how does this, is there a typical way that their usage uh, of this evolves, that they start doing something first, and then they say, oh, this is cool. Now let's try this and that. And then they, they, they start to master that. And then they say, now let's, you know, there's much more that we can do here. Now let's try this. Do you see some kind of path that the, your typical client takes here? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that, you know, listen, back in the day, 
if you're creating a thought leadership report, and I'm sure you did this a million times, right? You would write your 12 or 26 page report, and it would be like 98% gray wall of text, right? So that text report was great for the time. Then the next step is, well, we should probably drop some charts and graphs in here. And so they crank out a couple charts and graphs and they drop that in there. And you know what, listen, that's a great step in the right direction because visual, visualized data is, will bubble up insights for your audience that they would literally otherwise miss. And it's sort of a place for the eye to rest. It's a break from all the reading. There's a hundred reasons why you should absolutely do that. The next step after that is maybe, this is a small one, but I think it's a really important one is, okay, rather than just crank out some charts in Excel and just drop them in the report, how about we actually apply some design to these charts, some data visualization best practices, really think maybe through, is a line chart the right choice even for this particular data? What are we trying to do with this data? Why are we, trying, why are we including it? So a little bit more thought into both the design and the chart selection. And then eventually, you know, people start thinking about maybe, well, maybe for the promotional video only for this thought leadership, maybe we'll do throw some of that, maybe some animated visualizations into that part of it. So they think about on the marketing of that report, they'll start to think about some, some steps uh, towards uh, movement, dynamic things. Uh, and then eventually they start to think about doing more interactive experiences. And sometimes, you know, especially when you're starting, maybe they set the bar a little bit low. Okay, the, the report's the main thing. But we'll take one piece of that data, that thought leadership, and make like a little calculator or make a, you know, where do you fall in this, you know, thing that we've, we've done this research about? And so like a little sort of um, accessory tool to go along with the, the written report. And then eventually sort of the final step is when they say, you know what, the interactive thing is the report. It doesn't necessarily replace the PDF but they're on equal footing at a minimum. And of course, we're going to drive people to the really cool interactive one because that's where all the juice and excitement might be. Not to mention it becomes more shareable on social media. And when that happens, is, um, and is that where all the juice is, as you say, does that juice include, you know, that's what people are clicking on um, as opposed to there are more people clicking on this than say downloading the PDF version of this research report that we also have have provided you know what 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 motivates your clients to say you know what the interactive part of this is actually the most important you know it's a good question i, I don't have data to back this up um, so i can't say it definitively but I, I can say anecdotally some experiences that i've had where the interactive experience definitely tends to get the most attention excitement and interest especially at the beginning um, and whether the long tail of excitement and, uh, and traction is higher or lower or whatever compared to a PDF, it's hard to say because it's also part of the culture of the readers. And so one example is, I remember I did a project years ago and people said, the, the interactive thing is amazing, but I have to take the PDF and print it out and give it to the CEO of my company because he's going to read it on a plane. And so the interactive wasn't literally wasn't an option for well, that was you know, sort of pre-airborne Wi-Fi, I suppose. <laughs> wasn't really an option uh, in that situation. So you know, there's certainly a, a few years back, especially a very important place for the PDF in addition to the interactive report. But you know, as an example, I can think of at least one example where you know McKinsey created the, this COVID uh, COVID center. I think it's called. I can't remember exactly the name of it. 
this series of, you know, now at this point, you know, maybe dozens of interactive experiences all about COVID and economic data related to COVID. And the, the, it includes, I believe, some PDF reports of specific bits of research. But the entire experience is this massive, beautifully designed, very rich, interactive set of visualizations. And that's, that's, the, um, that's the magnet. Um, so even though people may be downloading these PDFs, I'm sure they are, the magnet is this experience. Uh, so you know, they, they balance each other. They're, they both have value, but you know, the interactive becomes central to, has become central to what they're doing. And that's where your friend, and I guess my friend, because I've gotten to know him a little bit, but not like you, Jason Forrest, uh, yeah. was involved and, and still is involved in that, in, in the, the COVID area. Yeah, he's the director that. of that group that's creating those. Okay. And maybe Jason at some point could tell us, you know, how many more viewers, how many more millions of viewers it's already drawn to the millions of viewers, McKinsey.com already. But that would be a fascinating conversation. Since 2016, Jason Forrest and his colleagues at McKinsey have been leading the firm into the data visualization age. Jason runs interactive data viz on the firm's COVID response center. He's also editor-in-chief of a new online and print journal for data viz professionals. That publication is called Nightingale and is published by the Data Visualization Society. Companies like McKinsey seem to be far ahead of the average professional service firm in, in this area. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice to a, uh, say, a mid-sized to large professional firm that, that is kind of kicking the tires and wants to know how they should get going here um, and, and to prove to the budget holders who could also be the chief marketing officer that this is an area that's worthy of our investment? You know, like anything, I would say start with a pilot. And let's say, you know, maybe a mid-sized to large firm creates, what, five to 500 thought leadership pieces a year, right? If you're on the larger end. So let's say if you're, you create a dozen. Every month you come out with a significant, you know, thing. One of them is probably the big one. Like this is the one that, that you know, is the, the garners the most attention. It's the one you care about the most as a firm. Okay. So maybe for that one, you can do what I described earlier as part of the stepping stone towards getting better at this and doing more of it, where you, if it's a piece of research that's been done, maybe there's a component of it that can be, we can build like an interactive tool that is like an accessory to that report. It's both, by the way, not just an accessory as though it's like an add-on, but it also becomes like a marketing um, focus, you know? Uh, you know, an example is I did a project years ago, um, and it was essentially they'd done some research about what makes a good CEO. I can't remember if that CEO succession. I, I'm not sure. I can't remember. But long story short, we created a tool that would allow you, the reader, to figure out like, would you be able to? Would you make a good CEO uh, for certain types of companies? And so you could sort of plug your own information in. That was a subcomponent of the larger research report. So. I would recommend one of those firms take the most important thing they've done, uh, carve off a bit of budget to do a pilot interactive thing, use that as sort of a marketing attractor, uh, and then obviously ahead of time, set up those metrics that will allow you to judge it, not based on necessarily clicks or likes or shares or whatever, but 
you know, something tangible that uh, you can literally track and figure out if it's going to do the work that you needed to do uh, as a firm. You know, different firms have different goals. Sometimes it is just about views. We just want, it's just all about awareness. Great. Then maybe that's valid for you. Or maybe it's about, did we get phone calls and sell business from the people who clicked through to this thing? And, you know, oftentimes there are ways to track those depending on the kind of, kind of system you have in place. So, you know, def- specific, measurable goals ahead of time, and then carve off a small bit to pilot. And that client that you mentioned that had that CEO, that tool that somebody could use um, to figure out whether he or she, uh, from what you described, could be a CEO candidate and whatever. Did that spark that client's interest in in doing a lot more in DataViz? I mean, what what that actually was? I was working with them already on other projects. That's, that's it was Booz and Company, and they had been dabbling with it really off and on for years. Uh, I had created a bunch of interactives for them. You know, then, you know, Booze obviously got bought by PwC. PwC already was doing a lot of data visualization and interactives. I, they were a client of mine as well. Um, and so I don't know exactly how those things merge together, but PwC has, has been doing it for years. Um, and I'm, I'm not too up to date on what they're up to these days, but I know that at one point they had a, a decent sized team built focusing on DataViz, both for internal use and marketing and also for client-facing work. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to give us a demo because I think it's easy for people who have not waded into these waters. It's hard for them to understand what, what this can do for them, how it can help them explain concepts, research findings, and, yeah. and their thought leadership material better. So I wonder if you could walk us through an example of, of, of something that you really like and, and uh, something you designed uh, for, on behalf of a client or on behalf of yourself um, that, that shows the power of this. Yeah, I can definitely do that. I found a data set that looks, essentially has every athlete who has ever competed in the Olympics, literally from 1896 all the way to up to present day. So 270,000 athletes, I believe. Um, or 270,000 athletic appearances in the Olympics. It's like some people are in there more than once. Long story short, I turned 50 a few years ago and I was asking, and I do athletic things. So I asked myself this thesis question, are your Olympic dreams over at 50? So that's my research project. I decided to find out whether or not my my dreams at Olympic medal are officially dead or just likely dead. (laughs) So that was the thesis. And so I explored this data for quite a while. by the way, I teach workshops about data storytelling and data visualization, and we use this data set in the workshops. So I've been working with this data set for literally six or seven years, and I've never actually done a project myself. So that, that was part of the motivation to do this. So anyways, so are your Olympic dreams over 50? So I decided to sort of do the research, try to find the insights, and then bubble up the key insights. And you know what I decided to create, which I, I love creating this type of experience, is what's called a scrolly telling experience, where as you scroll things are revealed. So anyways, we start off the data story and it says, listen, age is just a number. And that's certainly true for some careers like, you know, politics, science, and acting as an example, but is it true for athletes? And then as you continue to go, this is where the scrolly telling part comes in. As you scroll and the story starts to reveal itself in words, you also get these visualizations. So this is used a lot in journalism, but I think it can be incredibly effective 
for thought leadership as well? Because what is the difference between thought leadership and journalism? I know that there are some strategic differences, but the ideas are very similar. You're communicating data, complex information to an audience, and you're telling it in a progressive way. And so I think this tactic, this technique actually works quite well. So long story short, you know, a visualization where, okay, I'm saying out of 41,000 Olympic medals awarded, you know, essentially a lot of them, most of them, 86% are between the ages of 18 and 35. So this distribution diagram shows you that. As you continue to scroll, as you can see, the visual changes. Listen, it's very rare to compete and win a medal beyond 40 and especially beyond 50. And so you know, I'm revealing stuff as I'm scrolling, the visual is sort of updating, and then that visual goes away. And then we get to the next essentially segment of the story, the next section of content, where now I'm saying, well, listen, actually being old-ish is good generally in the Olympics because the average age of medal winners for a little over half the sports is higher than the average age of all the competitors in, in each one of those sports. And then I sort of make the point that, you know, again, the visual highlights to sort of support the second point, which is interestingly, only five of those sports had a single 50 plus medal winner since 1980. So, you know, I don't have to walk through the whole thing and explain the whole story, except to say that as you scroll through this story, different visuals appear that really help bring the story to life to explain uh, visually along with the text what I'm talking about. And it's dynamic and it's interactive. And I think it's kind of cool looking and bright colors and it's fun to play with. It's fun to scroll up and down. And, you know, and it's also interactive, by the way, all of these are, are hoverable and you get a little bit more information for everything along the way. So long story short, you know, there, there is the ability to really tell um, a very focused story with full screen, rich, animated, interactive visuals, but you don't lose the ability to go into depth. So at the very end, I have this grid of every single Olympian who has ever won a medal uh, beyond the age of 50 since uh, 1980, I believe. And I have the ability to dive deep into all of this stuff. So, so to your question earlier about the power of interactivity, we're not just limited to, let me tell you a story and show you five charts. Um, of course, I can let you kind of endlessly explore with the power of the interactivity as well. One example, I had a lot of fun creating this. And of course, I found out that especially if I learned to ride a horse, uh, earning a medal at 50 or up in equestrian events is very doable. So just, you know, a little insight for you all in case you're interested. So are you thinking of entering as an equestrian? No, but, you know, Tom Brady ret retired a couple of days ago, and I'm thinking he should, you know, he, he doesn't have an Olympic gold medal. So that, that's uh, something he should strive for. I love it. That's a great example. That's a great Thank example. You. Thanks for sharing it. Of course. All right. So, so if a, a large B2B firm uh, wants to begin doing stuff like this, which is really cool, really cool. Um, you know, what, what skills should it just outsource this to people like you? And, and, and I imagine there, there are a lot of other people like you out there and maybe yeah. even whole firms. I, I don't know, but uh, you know, maybe there's some uh, um, specialist firms that do this, but should it just begin by outsourcing it all or should it begin bringing people in house to do it or do both? You know, what do you, what do you advise? Yeah, you know, I think that when you're starting and you're experimenting and you're piloting, it's always wise just from a business standpoint to outsource or at least outsource part of it. Um, I've worked with clients where they literally, and yes, there are agencies that do this. I've, I've worked with clients that said, I'm going to hire an agency to produce this entire thing. Great. That is totally an option. 
or I'm going to hire a designer, designer data visualization expert type person, someone like me. Uh, but then I'm going to have my team execute on the ideas and build it in whatever tools we use. That's also great. Or we're going to hire someone to you know, consult with us and think through a few ideas, but then you know, more coach the team how to build their own. Any of those will work. I definitely would recommend uh, piloting, experimenting, trying things, and leaning on outside expertise at the beginning before you build a team. Because the fact is, building a data visualization team can take many, many different forms. And what I've seen happen too often, and, and it, it, usually this happens when building a data viz team is driven by the data analytics group, as opposed to, say, marketing, as an example, is they build a team around tools. So let's, let's hire a bunch of Tableau people, and then we'll be great at data visualization. And listen, Tableau is awesome. I love Tableau as a tool. But that may or may not be the best tool, the best type of experience to create for thought leadership marketing. It may be. But when you start with the tools, um, you start with a sort of a technical approach, then it's generally, or I shouldn't say generally, it's not necessarily aligned with the goals of thought leadership marketing. So, you know, start with why are we doing this? Well, we've created some thought leadership research. We want to get it out there. We want to demonstrate our expertise and all the other reasons we do thought leadership. Fantastic. This report, what is the data? What, what, is the, what, are we, what is the action we want our audience to take with this? That needs to drive everything. Okay, maybe starting off with a data visualization consultant who can consult on how you translate that into a really compelling experience for an audience, even if all the rest of it is done in-house, is probably the best way, again, to start. Eventually, you probably do want to build your own team, um, but no better way to build a team than to know why you're building a team and what you're actually building it do. And it may yeah. be a hybrid. Like I said, you know, sometimes yeah. you start off with a thought leadership marketing focus, but eventually that team may be doing other stuff. You can make these data viz teams billable to for, on client work, but you know, know what you're doing at the beginning, uh, which you know you can learn best through smart piloting. Yeah. So a, a big B2B firm, a software company like Salesforce or Adobe or a large consulting firm, McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting Group, Accenture large IT services firm, uh, Wipro, Tata Consultancy, Infosys, Cognizant, um, if they say, we really want to do this with our thought leadership, we need these skills in thought leadership. Um, do you believe they should also make these people they've hired and whose skills they hopefully have continued to develop, should they make the, the data viz people also available to you know the non-marketing, um, you know the, the 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 other areas in which these people are used, like on on client projects, or to help the CFO or somebody in the finance area uh, visualize things. Maybe this is what Capital One, how Capital One is using their people is, you know, we we need to visualize, um, you know, uh, and get a better handle on our business right? What, what yeah. market segments we should be focusing on, which is not an external marketing application of this. It's kind of an internal application. So I guess the question, mm -hmm. long-winded, is the question would be when a company gets really sophisticated at this to support thought leadership marketing, do you think they're better off using these people just to support that and having other data viz people embedded in other parts of the business? 
Is it is it hard yeah. for you think it would be hard for these data biz people to switch from doing thought leadership marketing stuff to internal stuff that the public never sees? Yeah, I don't think it's hard for data biz people to do that. So from that standpoint, I would say it's perfectly fine to have them be doing different work. Because listen, if you're an information designer, um, if you're a strategic thinker, then I don't care if I'm doing journalism. I don't care if I'm doing thought leadership marketing. I don't care if I'm doing internal data to help drive better decision-making internally. What my job is, is to understand the problem you're trying to solve or the ideas you're trying to communicate, the data underlying that, that you've done this research that you've done, the insights that you've bubbled up, and then who your audience is so I can think about how to communicate that with them. They're the same to you know, a strategic thinking, data viz designer person. So from that standpoint, no problem to share them, have them on different tasks. Now, obviously, if you're, especially as you're starting to dip your toe into this, you're building a team, you know, you don't want to share them, you don't want to lose them, you want to make sure they're available for your, your projects, et cetera. You know, certainly as you start out, you might want to keep them close. Uh, and also, because then you can build, help develop their skills in the way that serves your needs the best. Um, but long-term, I think that, you know, ideally, companies would have data visualization teams that could serve different functions in different ways because then you can start to standardize around tools, frameworks, approaches, brand standards within data visualization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this, is, this is big enough and important enough that it should not be silos. This team does it this way, this team does it this way, this team does it that way. We can all have some custom approaches and, and custom things we do, but data viz is, you know, someone, I can't remember who it was who said this, but essentially they described data visualization as a language. Um, it is that fundamental. I know people think of it now as like, oh, this cool, sexy, new, different thing we should try. And great, please try it. But it's more foundational that, than that. It is, it's essential. It's kind of like actually a good metaphor is that back in the day, uh, when the web came along, companies said, oh, I need one of those website things. Let's make a website. And yeah, maybe we'll put it up on the website. Maybe we won't. That's it's this thing over here, kind of like the other stuff we do. No, no, no. Most companies now realize the website is the center of the universe for their marketing efforts and for more than just their marketing in a lot of cases. Data viz is not quite the center of the universe. It's more like the foundation underlying a lot of what should be happening inside of companies. And so one group that does that and can build systems and, and um, uh, standards you know, cohesively throughout the organization is a good thing. Kind of a rambling answer, I apologize, but I think it's, it's no. pretty important, I think. No, it's a great answer. So if a company says, well, look, um, you know, we think these skills can be taught and we're going to take our existing people, our editors, our writers, um, our social media marketers, our other people in thought leadership, content development and marketing, for those who are interested in, the, in data visualization and raise their hand and say, yeah, I would, I would like to do this, or at least part-time, I, I would like to try this. Do you think it's possible to, to uh, train people pretty fast uh, to get at a capable enough level and not go to the outside if, if they're starting out or not? Yeah, I know. Listen, I teach now more than I do. I, I, it's about 80-20 now. I teach classes on LinkedIn learning. 
I teach a class at the University of Vermont. I teach workshops like companies who are trying to do this. They hire me to come in and teach their staffs how to do this stuff and think that way. Uh, and I even facilitate classes for one of the big four firms. In fact, Bill has designed seven online courses on data storytelling and data visualization on LinkedIn's learning site. He's been doing this since March 2018. His courses are archived and available for viewing for a small fee. They run about an hour to almost three and a half hours in length. It is 100% teachable, no question about it. Yes, some raising of the hands, yes, I'm interested would be a good idea because you know you have to want you have to be interested in data, which is not necessarily universal among marketing types, writers, designers. So you want to find just those who really are interested in it. Um, but yeah, it's 100 percent teachable. They, these are there are some rules. There are definitely some best practices. You definitely have to have some data literacy, you know, in order to work with data. But absolutely teachable. Um, and certainly, again, if you're going to do a pilot project. One of the things I've done for a couple of clients is they hire me to come in and work on a project. And part of my job during the project is to do the coaching so that, you know, whether I'm doing formalized teaching and or, you know, more informal coaching so that they can run with it once I'm gone. Um, yeah, I think it's, a, it's very doable. And do you see any patterns in the backgrounds of these people that are coming to these classes? Um, you know, are they mostly editors? Are they mostly uh, PowerPoint, you know? presentation designers for the Salesforce or they, you know, any, any patterns in, in, in. uh... Yeah, no, interestingly, they're not, there aren't any patterns because um, data visualization is a team sport, um, particularly in, you know, thought leadership marketing group. Uh, When I teach workshops, oftentimes there is a mixture of people in the room. We, yes, we have the editors, the writers, we have designers, we have sometimes data people, you know, the researchers, uh, and the best of those projects happen when those people collaborate. And so part of what I'm teaching them is how to work together. Listen, writer, you're never going to be doing the data analysis, maybe, and you're not a designer. That's okay. But do you know how to talk to the designer to make sure that they are including the right text and the right information in the right place alongside that chart so that it's communicating the way you want them to? Researcher. You're not going to do the design either, but can you translate your insights with the designer and talk to each other in a way that, that the design visual experience actually expresses the insight, doesn't just blurt out all of the data that you happen to have in a spreadsheet. So that translation, that collaboration is what it's all about. Um, I would say the only thing, the only pattern that these people have in common is the desire to work on these kinds of things. Um, you know, no, it's not like everyone has a data background or everyone has a certain roles that they've, they've performed in the past. It's really, um, that's where it sort of gets, it is more like a language where it's more, it's more of a foundational way of thinking, working with data. Uh, yeah, you have to have some certain skills, but, uh, you know, because it can be such a collaborative process, everyone can do what they do and they just lean on each other for the things that they don't know that they're not experts in. Yeah, it almost seems like a whole new profession. I mean, I know you you are part of a, a magazine, an online magazine. Is there, I think there's a print version of it now as well. So I, I'm, I was on the board of the Data Visualization Society, which is a membership organization. And yeah, they have a publication, which they're coming out with their first uh, edition of a print version uh, later this year, hopefully. So yeah, it's, and it is, it's a profession and it is an incredibly diverse profession because yes, you have, data people. I I do data analysis and I sometimes visualize that data. No, no, no. I'm a journalist. 
and I work with data and I do data-driven journalism. Well, I'm an academic. I research this stuff. Oh, I'm a, the, the job, the roles are really all over the map, which is kind of neat. I guess you have graphic design people, right? Web design and Absolutely. traditional graphic design who are uh, kind of gravitating towards this, being, being pulled toward this. Bill, um, last question here. It's about the biggest mistakes and the most common mistakes you see uh, B2B companies uh, that are using, doing this on behalf of thought leadership, thought leadership marketing, biggest mistakes they're making in this arena and, uh, and therefore, you know, how they should avoid them. Yeah. I don't know if this is restricted to within thought leadership. It's, it's broader than that, but I mentioned it earlier. It's, it's focusing on tools. I think that's the biggest mistake people make in data visualization generally. You know, we're going to hire a bunch of Tableau people and now we can do data visualization. And, you know, that's technically true. And that may be the best team, the best approach, the best standard to follow for, for your organization. Or it may be, uh, you know, as we say, hopefully this is not too PG-13 for your podcast, but uh, that may be asked backwards, right? So, you know, I say, figure out what you're doing, experiment with it, and then slowly build the skill sets that actually can do that. Um, a lot of companies start with the tools. Uh, and by the way, we make decisions for, about tools for all the wrong reasons. Well, Tableau is the 800-pound gorilla. Everyone's using Tableau. I guess you should use Tableau. Well, no, Microsoft now, Power BI is included in a lot of corporate licenses for Microsoft Office. So I guess we should use Power BI because it costs less. You know, like, are those the right reasons to choose a tool as critical as that? I would say not. So focusing on tools, focusing on the technical requirements rather than having more of that strategic consultative approach, which is ironic for consulting firms, among others, to sometimes not be consultative in their own processes. But you know, I see it everywhere. It, it, that's, that's the biggest mistake, I, I think, briefly. And, and so I guess what I'm hearing, Bill, is that when people start with the tools and they assign people to focus on the tools and to, to uh, buy what they think is the, the best one for them and to learn the tool, et cetera, et cetera, what, what, guess what I'm hearing is that they're not t- uh, t- taking a step back and saying, well, wait a second, whether it's this tool or another tool, what should we be trying to accomplish with this technology, no matter what the tool is? Yeah. What, what, what can this help us do with thought leadership that we just can't do um, given the, the traditional way we have presented this material, both online yeah. and print, right? They, they haven't it. taken that step back. No, it's always about taking the, the extra step back. That it's, it's always about why am I doing this? What do I want people to do with it? And if you literally, they got, I, I have these terrible acronyms that I use when I'm teaching data storytelling and visualization. Uh, they're called the QIs, and they're, they're awful acronyms. I'm not even going to say them out loud. But the QIs, which is a good shorthand for the three bad acronyms, is be, and it's good, it's decent, because it rhymes with why. And it's all about that. And you got to take that step back, ask why, what do I want to do? And if you sit literally just hit yourself in the head every time you find yourself going down a rabbit hole and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why again? <laughs> what are we trying to do? Then yeah, you, you avoid that mistake. It's much easier too. Because you know, the classic problem, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that's what happens a lot when we focus on tools. Any other common mistakes? Any big, big co- and common mistakes you, you in, in addition to starting with the tool instead of starting with how are we going to use this? You know, I think that, I guess the other one is being so obsessed with, oh, we got to try this data viz thing. 
uh, and again, it's a lack of strategic thinking generally tied to this, is you know, sort of ticking, ticking the box. We got to try the data viz thing. We tried the data viz thing. It worked. It didn't work, whatever. And not really asking the same questions. Why? Why are we doing this? What are we trying to accomplish with it? So that's about ticking a box and not being thoughtful about what you're doing or how you're doing it. Uh, and then also, another thing I mentioned earlier is, did you decide ahead of time how are you going to measure success? So, you know, we're going to do this interactive thing. Fantastic. I bet it's going to be amazing. But how are you going to know if it was amazing? You know, are you going to literally figure out a way to track incoming clicks into sales if that's a critical to you? And that's a hard thing to track, by the way. <laughs> or at a minimum, are we going to track, okay, how many people who clicked through the interactive experience and spent at least three minutes engaging with it then downloaded the PDF or then did X, Y, or Z other action? How many people who clicked through to this internet, you know, interactive thing then went and looked at the service area web pages within our website. I don't care if they filled out the form. I don't care if they called us, but I, but I, don't, but I don't want them seeing look at a different service, service area that has nothing to do with this one. So you decide ahead of time what the goals are, figure out a way to measure it, track it, and then you know, you'll actually be able to evaluate what, what you've done. I did a project for um, a big insurance company for a thought leadership uh, platform of theirs a few years ago. And I was really impressed that in addition to building this rich interactive experience, which was you know, a major, probably the most important, one of the most important thought leadership things they did, uh, they do each year, we had like logged trackable events for all the different actions. So for, in other words, we created a dropdown so you could filter the data to look at it this way. When someone clicked on that filter, we logged it. And we said, A, did they use the filter? Yes. B, what did they select? So that we knew later, next year, two years later, when we update this thing, is that filter even useful? Should we get rid of it? So little decisions like that are also very powerful and that people should be more thoughtful about. And most aren't. The insurance company, did they then track how many people went uh, to look at some insurance product of the firm? I don't think they did. Uh, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a good question. I, I should I should try, try to find out. <laughs> and, and so, would you advise companies that um, where you know the, the person who's moving is, is pushing this area and brings you in, they're under budget pressure. They have to prove that this is actually going to you know help increase the top line, et cetera. Do you then encourage them to say you need to track this? You need to be able to show uh, it's role in more views of your products, et cetera, et cetera. You, 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 you should track, you know, you should track this if you're under pressure to show that it's a worthy investment. Yeah. And again, what you track can be very nuanced and complicated. You know, again, so like if, if you wanted to track, did the phone ring and did people buy stuff from us? Good luck with that one. That's a hard one. Um, although even that may be doable. Like for instance, you know, I run Google ads for my workshops and this is a constant question I have is, are they worth it? <laughs> are people, I know people are clicking my ads and I get web traffic, but are they the ones who are buying from me? I actually don't know to this day. And especially maybe, maybe my numbers are too low to really make statistical sense of it all. But I do have a conversion tracker where I do know someone clicked an ad, got to my website, and then they filled out the requested date form. Like, please tell us if you can do a workshop for us. That I consider like a successful transaction. 
So I have as, I've gone as deep as I can, given the nature of my business. Uh, and for some companies, I think it'll probably take it even further, especially if they have marketing auto- automation platforms built in. So yeah, I, you know, I think it is important that people consider that. You know, if, you, if you're pulling dollars from one place to make this happen, and you're going to be accountable for that, then try to figure out a way to be able to report up success to your managers. Yeah, track where the eyes are going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Bill, this has been great. And I want to thank you for your time. And I also want to thank you for uh, helping me with the whole chapter of my book, which was on once your thought leadership drives people to your website, then how do you get them more interested in your company's services or products? And one of the ways you do that is through data visualization. And uh, I mean, it was you, I think it was you definitely who inspired me to write about that in that chapter. And it's you who um, vetted what I had written and told me where I was off <laughs> and, and, and told me where I was on or, or, or that I was moving in a good direction. So keep going. So thanks again <laughs> for, for your wisdom in that. Uh, You're that, very welcome. That was great. It was, it was definitely my pleasure. And uh, I am so excited. I, I got the book in the mail yesterday. And uh, so I'm going to start reading it now. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. Terrific. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, we would love to bring you back uh, at some future date. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. It was great talking to Bill Shander about data visualization. In my book, Competing on Thought Leadership, I devote a whole chapter, chapter eight, to data visualization and how it should be used to present thought leadership concepts. And Bill was one of my prime contributors to the thinking in that chapter. So thank you, Bill, for your contribution to my book. And thank you for a truly interesting and wide-ranging interview about how data visualization is so important and is becoming so important to thought leadership content today and how it will become more important over the rest of this decade. If you'd like to get more information on Bill and his company, simply go to his website, which is BillShander.com, B-I-L-L-S-H-A-N-D-E-R.com. Thanks again.